it was difficult. You know, you went out for dinner in the evening, anything could happen. Foreigners are um, kidnapped and, and held as hostage. And I was working with the UN uh, as a foreigner, and people know that's there. So I, I think whenever we face stuff, there's a lot of people say, oh, you know, face the fear, you'll be fine. And I wasn't fine, but I did the seminar very well. It went fantastically well. But I had that sense of, thank God, I'm going home to Singapore. Welcome to the With Sayada podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Belonging and Understanding. The podcast that brings to you stories of lived experience that you might not otherwise encounter. This is a podcast that encourages you to cultivate belonging and understand others. I'm your host, author and coach Sayada Zaidi, and every episode I'll be asking a new guest to share their story. Dr. Philip Merry specializes in helping organizations build high-performing, multicultural global teams. He has over 30 years experience in this area as a trainer, speaker, and coach with leading global organizations in 59 countries on six continents. His multidisciplinary approach integrates the latest research in cultural intelligence, team profiling, intuitive heart coherence, appreciative inquiry, positive psychology, quantum leadership. Clients comment on his ability to create a learning climate that challenges leaders to raise the bar on their performance by strengthening mindsets that build personal meaning, collaboration and results. So today's guest is Philip Merry, and uh, we had uh, a couple of meetings or interactions through a community called the exchange approach which was set up via um by john Berghoff. and i mentioned that because the way that our conversation kind of then continued was certainly slightly unexpected for me because the deeper connection that we formed was through some comments that i made on a facebook post that philip put up about the football and about um the euro uh, cup um, for 2020 and just unpacking some of the things that were happening as a result of that and um, Phil you're based in Singapore I'm in London but I think there's just something really magical about um, the the bond and the connection that we formed and dare I even say the synchronicity of how we met. Well I, I, I think so Sadie uh, because the more I read about you you and I have trod similar paths. Uh, for eight years, I worked for the London Borough of Lambeth uh, in, in Kennington as a family therapist. Uh, absolutely loved that. Then went to Sri Lanka. But when I came back, I worked for the London Borough of Brent. Uh, and you've worked with both those boroughs. Uh, now, we're pro I'm not going to ask you how old you are, Saida, but uh, I was from 1972 to 1980 in Lambeth, and then I was from 1982 to 88 in Brent. Uh, and so it's just nice to know 
that we actually and the other thing is that in 1979 I was offered a team leader social work post in Tower Hamlets which was a place that I also worked in the place that you also worked in and uh, so so yeah that we if, we if we examined we'd probably find lots of other connections uh, and I always say that when there's a connection that not only is on paper looks interesting but you know talking to you twice now I feel a connection uh, and that says for those of us listening who believe that there's many lives that we leave uh, maybe there's a connection that goes back to previous lives too but I, when I look at you and when I talk to you Saida I, I get a real sense of familiarity oh. that we've met before. Thank you Phil I mean it's just really amazing isn't it how you can form such a deep bond and um, connection with somebody so quickly um, and, and, isn't it, and isn't it sorry to interrupt isn't it amazing of course we know we all complain about online and technology and all the rest of it but what an amazing age we live in here am I in Singapore you're in London we were connected through America we couldn't do that in other ages right the, the age of connection Mm. is bringing so much I think to friendships around the world yeah I absolutely agree and I think um on that there are lots of pros and cons on the internet and about the internet but I think for me the thing is is that we just if you kind of are seeking something then you will find it you know and so for me I'm very much looking for these relationships and these bonds and people that I can support and likewise people who can support me Absolutely. And and also it's very important to, it's not one size fits all. So it's not the internet in that sense, because the internet, wow, what would we do without being able to search and find stuff? Um, the things that sometimes can be negative are those social media platforms, mm. which again, I'm very, very grateful for. But but sometimes they can be negative in the sense of, you know, the the, the, the tensions they've set up and the fact that people really use social media platforms as a substitute for real face-to-face connection. Now, I know we can't do that at the moment, but I read, interestingly, uh, Saida, and we're going to go all sorts of places with this interview, I know, but I read two days ago of research out of the UK that says for the elderly in times of COVID, they said, never mind, we've got internet Zoom connection. They found that were, they had two groups, older, older people who didn't use um, Zoom for connection and those who did, that those who did were more depressed and lonely than those who didn't. Now, isn't that an amazing thing? Over 60s in the UK, the more Zoom connection, the more lonely they felt. And those who had no Zoom connection at all didn't feel so lonely. I don't know why that works or how that works, but fascinating yeah it is really interesting and I'm just thinking about my own kind of experience of that and the people who are over 60 in in my network and for for the people who did use zoom particularly at the beginning of the pandemic I think that there was a feeling of oh it's okay they have some connection and so you one felt kind of less moved to actually visit and make that physical kind of like um, interaction with that person by going to see them, even if it was outside. So I wonder if that's got something to do with it. 
Well, don't forget, you've got one more over 60 in your network in me. <laughs> well, I'm really looking forward to coming to Singapore to meet you so much so, actually, because when we lived in Malaysia, and this is another kind of element of synchronicity, right, right, right. when we lived in Malaysia, um, I, I never made it to Singapore, I don't right. think. Yeah, or, or maybe I did just the once, but actually my my husband and the kids managed to go and have a really good holiday there. And I feel as if I've kind of like, it's waiting for me. So somewhere it's on my bucket list. What were you doing in Malaysia? I didn't know that. Oh, uh, So me, husband and the kids, I mean, primarily my decision, but with their support, we decided to go traveling for a few years. And uh, one of the stops that we made was Malaysia. Um I think 20 years back, we traveled to Malaysia and to, to Singapore and Hong Kong for our honeymoon. And it was always one of these places that we wanted to go back to. And so lived in um, Kuala Lumpur, um, Petaling Jaya for, gosh, maybe just under a year or so. Okay. Um, absolutely loved it, but I couldn't handle the humidity. <laughs> so 20 years ago, my wife and I lived in Malaysia. Wow. So we could have met, mind you, we lived in Johor Bahru. So, so, so that was there. So, mm. again, the other thing, I mean, partly to, to share a little bit more about where I'm coming from is that what, what I love um, in, in the world these days is being able to really travel to different places. Now, I, I'm a leadership and team consultant, global. I've done that for 40 years, off and on, no, 40 years full time. But, but what I love about my job is that in that period of time, I've, I've worked, uh, delivered seminars in 62 countries. Uh, and for me, that was as much about making sure that I really felt and understood the cultures of the countries that I was in. I mean, I, I did a lot of cross-cultural uh, work and cross-cultural seminars. Um, and, and I know I'm, I'm just going to go with my intuition here. Absolutely. Uh, okay, if that's okay, Saida, because I noticed one of the questions you sent to me was when were things, uh, what were the showstoppers you had overcome? Now, I didn't know exactly what you meant by showstoppers, um, but travel and, and going to different places, but particularly for me, I had a calling very early on, which was around building, understanding, peace and harmony between cultures. Uh, and I very specifically felt that that would be about working in places where there had been war. Mm. Uh, and one of the showstoppers I had was that eventually, I'd done a lot of work with the United Nations, and then eventually I got invited by the UN to work in Iraq. And then I thought, wonderful, my dream come true. Yes, I must say yes to this, because this is a manifestation of a dream I had many years before about how I would spend my life, which was bringing peace between cultures and faiths. Um, but I was frightened because I began to have images of getting kidnapped and then mm. getting beheaded in the desert or whatever it might be. Because the first thing you had to do when you go to these countries with the United Nations is have emergency training about what to do if you're in difficult situations uh, and so that the fact that I was going to Iraq was exciting but the thought of my fear uh, around being there and what may happen when I was there and 
I was frightened the whole way through it. Not made better by the fact that they gave me um, a, a personal guard. Mm. Somebody sort of followed me everywhere. So whenever I went into a lift, this um, guard had to get into the lift before to make sure it was okay. Mm. And the interesting thing was, I loved it because here I was working with the UN, both those outside of Iraq coming into Iraq and Iraqis helping them think about what peace meant and how to grow and develop the work they were doing. That was good, but the fear didn't leave me until I got in the plane and flew home. And and so that there's something Why do you think that was? Why do you think that um, it remained? Who knows? Because mm. everywhere I went, it was difficult. You know, you went out for dinner in the evening, anything could happen. Foreigners are... Um, kidnapped and, and held as hostage, and I was working with the UN uh, as a foreigner, and people know that's there. So I, I think whenever we face stuff, there's a lot of people who say, oh, you know, face the fear, you'll be fine. And I wasn't fine, but I did the seminar very well. It went fantastically well. But I had that sense of, thank God I'm going home to Singapore. Because mm. then the subsided. So I don't know why. Maybe it's a previous life. Maybe who knows what it is. Um, but, but so so when you're fulfilling your dream or what it is you think you're meant to do, don't imagine that the fear just goes away if you face it. Because a lot of people say that. For me, it didn't. Mm. I th- I think that in, in my own experience, when when I've experienced fear. Um, I've had to lean into it rather than anticipate or even expect that it will go away. Because I think if it certainly in the times when I've hoped that the fear will go away, actually you kind of, um, I've gone into a place of paralysis and I've done nothing. Whereas when I've leaned into it and just kind of accepted that it is part of that domain and even doing podcasts, to be perfectly honest with you, it sounds really silly and small. But actually, for me, there was a huge fear around doing that and kind of thinking, well, I'm going to be sharing a piece of me in this and how will it then be perceived but then it's about you know as you're describing it's kind of like you have to think about the bigger picture and what is the impact that you want to have and and so overcoming that fear or allowing it to still be there but just kind of still going through just became a little bit easier i I think i think that's right and also you don't have to there's no rule i knew that when i was invited to iraq i was going to go uh, and so I was waiting for that sense of dread to disappear, and it didn't, and it didn't matter, because I still knew this was part of the reason why I was put here on this earth, to try and bring groups together with whatever skill I have to do that. So all, all I'm saying, I guess, is that, yes, we expect it will go away, and it didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I chose to say this is what I'm put on earth to do, so I'm going to do it regardless of exactly how I was feeling. Mm. So, so, so that was fine to do that. And I, I think that part of the role that you have, and I suppose that I have too, is in any situation we're looking for what is the best thing to do to bring more understanding, more sense of humanity to this particular situation. Uh, and I think whether that's on a small focus, 
in terms of just our daily lives, whether we're allowed to play on on a bigger scale, which clearly you are and, and I've tried to do. Um, it's about saying, how do I bring a humanizing factor to this situation by first and foremost being human myself? Mm. A lot of people in, in helping work, I'll put in that phrase, who are there to make themselves feel good. Uh, and very often that will mean that they're rather patronizing in their approach, uh, that the people they're working with feel like they're being talked down to. Um, and, and my rule of thumb so often is about saying, this is just one poor human soul just like me, and we're struggling to make a life and make a living. So first and foremost, you know, talk to people. How, how you, how's your kids? How's your parents? Whether it's the person in the supermarket or in the shop or whether you're actually working with, you know, big companies, big organizations. And I think one of the things about the pandemic and working on, online is that I think that people don't feel so engaged because of the seeming difference. Um, and you know when you first arrive at a seminar, people have their coffee. Mm. The half an hour before the seminar begins, they chat and they talk. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I've seen so many Zoom calls where when it starts at 9 in the morning, the Zoom opens at 8.30 and everybody's in silence until 9 o'clock. And then the, the speaker says, Hello, folks. Good to see you. Nine o'clock. We better start. I was doing a, a seminar for 70 people, just me, uh, for people in Papua New Guinea. Uh, and I noticed we started at 8.30. And I just started chatting to people because I knew some of the people. Mm. But what happened was that it accelerated. So from 8.30 to 9 o'clock, we were saying things like, oh, that's a nice saying you've got behind you there, Saida. What is that about? Or... Mm beautiful cushions you have on your sofa behind there, something which humanizes uh, and then pass that on to other people. So if you'd said, well, it's early in the morning here at seven o'clock, then I'd say, anybody else coming early in the morning? Do you see what I'm saying? So the first period is about saying we're human beings together, let's connect. And I noticed that when I did that, the seminar then had a lot more people with their videos on and there was a lot more interaction. Why? Because we treated us all like human beings and not like lecturer, student at a seminar. And and I think what's really important about that is, is that we are treating people as individuals rather than, you know, a collective. And you're describing, you know, you had 70 participants at this event. You know, some people may say, oh, well, it's 70 and not really think about 70 individuals who are bringing their own energy and their own nuance and their own experience to the um, event that you were running. And I think there's just there is something um, really powerful about connecting at a human level. And so, for example, for me, one of one of the practices that I've adopted as I um, am learning how to do podcasts and having read all of this stuff that is out there that says in order to have a successful podcast, you do it this way. And I just I kind of leaned into that a little bit just to see, you know, what can I learn and then realize 
some of it is helpful, but some of it is a huge distraction. So one of my own practices is that, you know, 15, 20 minutes before a podcast, I come to my desk because most of these are being recorded over Zoom or another platform. And I kind of start looking at some information about my guest and start listening to their voice, either through another podcast or through a video or something like that. And there's something really important for me about thinking about how am I greeting my guest before they are even in the room? Well, absolutely. Uh, it's the attitude that you bring with you. But also it's about remembering what people say. So, so I was doing a, a session on resilience for some health workers here in Singapore. Uh, and I actually asked them at the beginning, just get, you know, just shout out what what have the, been the difficulties in COVID for you? Uh, and then one woman said, difficulty in organizing my wedding. Mm. Uh, she said, I probably advise never get married in the middle of COVID. Now, obviously, there were many other responses, but remembering that. So when it came to halfway through the seminar and I was asking a particular question, uh, uh, and I would say, um, Zainon, that must have been difficult for you uh, as you were planning your wedding. Now, there were many people at the seminar, but the fact that I remembered that and then called her out. Mm. What I do always is keep the faces on, no matter how big the crowd, if I can. Uh, and so I said, Zainon, where are you? You must be there somewhere. And then she spoke. I said, I'm here, Philip. I said, so tell the rest of us, what was it like for you as you were planning your wedding? And so she did that, and then that stimulated somebody else and stimulated somebody else. So I, I think as professionals, we've got to be paying attention when we're face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. I think it requires even more ability to pay attention to the little things with all of our audience so that humanizes the situation, allows them to be who they are. And, and I think, you know, in my life, I mean, I... I I started work in 1972. So when I left university in Manchester, I knew that I wanted to be working in social work. And so I applied for and got jobs in London. And when I was in London Borough of Lambeth, I worked in the Kennington area. So from Westminster Bridge down to the Oval, down to Lambeth Bridge and the river. That Very familiar. <laughs> Very familiar. So there you go. So I, I knew what I wanted to do was to live in that area. I didn't want to be seen as a middle-class social worker coming in from Croydon into the middle of Kennington. Uh, I wanted to live there to experience what it was like. Uh, and so it was, you know, it really helped my work, I think, the fact that I went to the same pubs, I went to the same churches, I took part in uh, pantomimes and plays in the community. Um, and, and I don't know why I'm thinking about this. So as I'm there uh, on a Saturday evening acting in a play, um, I said something, and I think it was somebody, ah, yeah, somebody looked at me and said, so who is this walking into my room? In the, in the play itself. And then somebody from the audience, a young kid, said, that's Phil Merry, my social worker. Don't you know who he is? <laughs> <laughs> now, everybody looked, what? The? But they all clapped. 
and I really loved, and I guess this has been true wherever I've lived and worked, I, I want to be part of and join with uh, the community that, that I'm working with. And, and sometimes you need distance, of course, but I think the fact that I, I lived in the same community as the people I was working with really helped me to feel part of that. And maybe that rubbed off on them too. And, and I, I kind of have done that wherever I've lived, I think. Mm. Find, I, find a way to make yourself human. Yeah, and I and I think that what I'm I'm also hearing is there's something about the footprint that you leave. And so as we were going through our travels, I always had this intention to leave something positive because I don't know if I'll ever be able to go back to that place. And, and you know, whether it's, you know, putting in some hours and doing some training for a, a group of people or, or making a donation or starting a project or doing something, but just knowing that you visited a place. And, and perhaps for me, as I'm thinking about this out loud, the thing is, is about how can I come to that place, stay there and then leave at peace, knowing that there is a chance I will never go back. And that, I think, is this thing about um, humanizing and really kind of connecting with people because, you know, it, it would be easy to go and live in a place for, you know, a month, a year even, and not connect. You know, I've seen, and, and you know, living in London, I, it's such a transient city. People can come and go because of work and various other things. And when you don't really connect with, with, I think, what is going on underground and the real people, I think you miss an opportunity. There's a lot of things in what you just said. Um, I mean, for me, I, 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 was, I went from London to Sri Lanka, uh, found my, my world mission, which was about building peace partnership across cultures, because I noticed that there was a lot of disconnect between locals and foreigners. And so I knew from Sri Lanka that this is what I was meant to be doing. Um, and I've been around in different places. I, I was head of leadership development for Reuters uh, in, in Asia. And latter part of the last 10 years, I've been focusing on the connection which is beyond time and place between people. Meaning, as you know, Saida, I focused on synchronicity, which is all about the ability for there to be connection between people, even there, they're not in the same place. So that you can think of a friend you haven't seen for a long time, two or three days later, they turn up by email or face to face. And so when you were talking about leaving something in a place, what I'm really finding and understanding these last few years, you never leave. Mm. Meaning that you physical body may leave, but as I sit here now, I can remember and feel all those people in my workshop in Iraq. They're in my heart, and now I know that with quantum physics, we're still developing it. We're not 100% sure, but there is a quantum field of which we are all a part. Uh, and my contribution to synchronicity thinking, some people still call it pseudoscience, but I think there is 
a potential with what we call quantum entanglement, meaning entanglement beyond physical space. That, that explains synchronicity. So although, and it's, it's, it sounds weird, it's probably going to sound weird to your guests, but I know, for example, that if I were working in Russia and in a seminar I met somebody and maybe I upset them or hurt them with words that I said, even though I'm no longer there and even though I said nothing, when I was there, I can sit here right now and send request for forgiveness and healing of that relationship, even though I'll physically never see that person again. So I, I'm fascinated these days, uh, Seda, mm -hmm. with, with our ability, you know, which all the great faiths have talked about forever, our ability to connect with people who are not physically present. And it's a spiritual connection from a faith point of view, but in quantum entanglement, which I'm so excited by the work that I do, uh, helping people understand that there is such a thing called quantum entanglement, which facilitates these synchronicities which come. Mm. Uh, wow, we're going to places I didn't think we'd go to, but it just, yeah. occurred to as, as you said that, because you never leave a place that you're in. You can try and do as much as you can, and obviously... You and I both do that. We make sure that we make a contribution and a footprint. But even when you leave, they are still there. You are still connected to them. Do you know, it's really powerful what you've said. And and um, I'll just share a couple of kind of um, reflections with you, if I may. And, and one is that um, I remember when I first went on um, pilgrimage to Mecca, and um, you're walking along the, the the kind of essentially taking the same steps as the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings upon him, took. And it's just yeah. it's this really, really strange kind of like connection um, that you then build, not just because you're in the place, but because literally you're thinking these are the same steps that he took. Right, and, right. and that was incredibly profound and here's this other thing because i'm i'm really into the like the concept of um uh, pilgrimage and walks and and what one can learn from the journeys that other people have been on and in the uk in recent years we ha we have something called the british pilgrimage trust and they've started to document different kind of the journeys of of um christian pilgrims within the uk and I remember once doing a walk in London and literally, you know, going along the same steps, kind of going to the Thames where the boat would have come in that they came out of and then walking along Tower Bridge and taking oh. that journey to St. Paul's. And oh. when you know the, the, the people who've trod this path, it gives you a different connection to that space. And oh. I just found that quite powerful in, even in how I view those spaces now, because I'm thinking about the legacy of all of the people and what they have left. And of course, you know, it sounds really silly because the pavement is very different, but there's something about just sharing that space and going on that same journey. Let, let, let me take that further. You're not just thinking about the other people, Saida. You're actually feeling and experiencing the feelings that they felt, which is much more powerful. Mm. 
And that's so nice to hear. I, I love pilgrimages, another connection between us, uh, potentially. Um, and, and while you were talking, I was thinking about uh, my wife and I did work in Jordan. Uh, and after the work, we went to Jerusalem. Mm. And I can never forget the feeling of, I've forgotten which church it is, but the church where Jesus was before he was arrested and crucified. Uh, and they have the stone, the very same stone where the next to the altar, where Jesus prayed the words, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, let me not be crucified, etc. And I'll never forget stand, kneeling at the front of the church with my hands, and I have a picture of it, my hands on the rock that Jesus, they say, actually prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Wow. And it was a powerful experience. And you can walk the whole path where Jesus is supposed to have walked with the cross. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's... These places have edges. These places have uh, oh, something around them that you can pick up. And again, if you begin to think about any faith which will have this we have a connection to God anywhere we are. Mm. The beautiful thing, I think, is that as quantum entanglement develops, I believe it's exactly the same thing. So that if you, wherever you are, just even put your hands up and feel, it's like saying you are in touch with the thoughts and the energies that are still attached to that place. And they explain... You know, when I work with organizations, it's like, I'll say to them, do you ever have situations where when you walk into a room, you can feel the atmosphere? And of course, all of us can. And we can explain that however we like to explain it. Uh, and in today's world, where there are different camps about whether you can talk about spirituality and faith in the workplace, uh, and obviously there are some camps which say keep politics and religion out of the workplace and don't talk about them. But but I I kind of respond to that by saying, look, you say you don't talk about uh, this stuff in the workplace, but do you ever use the word team spirit? Mm. I, said, yeah, you know. I said, so yeah, tell me what you mean by team. And they explained that. I said, okay, now tell me what you mean by spirit. And you tell me you don't bring spirituality into the workplace, but you've got leadership spirit and team spirit and partnership spirit. You're talking about it all the time. Uh, and I think we're, I believe, we're, we're in a kind of an interesting era, and I, and I know that you're a forerunner in this idea. I've looked at so much of the things that you're doing, and I'm so in awe of, of the wonderful things that you're contributing in interfaith and so many other ways. Um, I think we're in an exciting time where people are wanting to be their whole place, oh, sorry, whole, whole self. Uh, and when people say, don't bring God into the workplace, or faith into the workplace, but specifically don't bring God into the workplace, and I say, you mean he's not already there? Mm. We have this strange notion that when we walk into the workplace, somehow people believe it's possible to leave parts of you behind, but it's not. Mm. 
so I think we're in an age where certainly what I'm trying to do in teams and organizations is not to introduce the spirit into the workplace because it's already there. I'm trying to help people be comfortable about acknowledging what's already around. We are, we are emotional, we are mental, we are physical, we are spiritual. And I don't think it does any harm. In fact, I think it does fantastically positive good to the bottom line results of organizations to allow people to be their whole selves. Um, and I think that that's, that's part of the journey that we're on, is to take away the, the negative feeling of, of negative new age philosophy mm. being associated with actually finding synchronicity in the workplace. Does that make sense? Yeah, and and there's so many different things coming up for me because um, you know I'm I'm trying to do work um, that is beyond the current language that we have, for example, in diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so I, I, it's been very helpful to get us to where we are now. But my view, in the words of uh, Christopher Lockhead, is to create a new category you know, and to also change the language, because I'm not quite sure how if we continue using um, some of the work that is currently available, you know, how how much impact is that really going to have? Because the problem is still there. Um, and the other piece that's coming to me is that uh, I, I, I see, because of the research that I'm doing within practical theology, I see that there are solutions it's just that what they have they haven't been taken and applied into a different place partly the work context partly corporate etc and it's just kind of thinking well how does one make that extrapolation and take some of those solutions and i'm not saying it's perfect and nothing will ever be perfect but if we have answers then we can play with them to get to move us along the journey and i suppose the research that I'm doing really is is how do we bring together um, the best of or what is working in a number of different arenas just to help us to to have this conversation of how does one bring their complete whole humanity into the workplace, at home, in relationships, in conversations, into the community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because when you do that, and you really feel as if you're able to be yourself, then I think, you know, it, it, it kind of enables you to live in a level of integrity that means you show up in a different way. I, I think that's true. Anna. To me, what I always try and do is to find a common sense language that ordinary human beings use. Mm. I think that people... You know, are connected. I, I'm thinking of an incident, and I haven't thought about this for a long time. Um, my wife and I were, were facilitators in the World Council of Religions, I think it's called, uh, and we were having a, a global meeting. Parliament, Parliament of Religions. Mm. Yes, the World Parliament of Religions. There's a gathering of all the world's faiths. Uh, and we were in Spain, uh, and we were facilitating dialogues where different faiths described to others in small groups what particular concepts might in their faith. But what, what I just remembered, I don't know why I remember this, is that we, on the last day, we had the whole of 
the, the community, about 200 people in one room in small groups of four or five. And we had various questions and I was a facilitator of one of those groups uh, and we were trying to come to agreement and you could tell it wasn't going very well. You could sense the atmosphere among the 200. Suddenly, I fainted. Gosh. Now, I was in the middle of this thing uh, and suddenly, it was something to do. I, I turned my neck and apparently something got blocked in the blood flow. Uh, and I collapsed. And like two months later, two minutes later, I woke up and there was somebody beating my chest. Mm -hmm. I hadn't I hadn't stopped breathing, but we had a nurse who was a bit, you know, she wanted to do something. But what they told me later, and then I actually, you know, I left and, and recovered while this thing went on. But what somebody told me later was that what happened when I collapsed, because the whole thing stopped, suddenly... I had everybody from whatever faith they were praying for me. Mm. Uh, and suddenly the whole room from not agreeing intellectually about all sorts of doctrines and concepts and ideas, suddenly everybody was together with one aim, which is praying for healing for me. <laughs> I was okay. I was okay. But somebody said, everything switched because rather than being divided by concepts and doctrines and ideas everybody was united in one spirit which is praying for my healing um so what i mean is that humanity whichever faith you are from we need love we need respect we need to belong we need to feel as if we matter. Mm. And I think if we pay attention to those basics, then we've got more chance of, of coming together. Isn't that weird? I haven't thought about that. That was like 25 years ago, and I hadn't thought about that incident for a long time. But you know what I'm saying? It's like Absolutely. The, way we, the way we come together is working on stuff which is our very survival and health and well-being as humans. Mm. And put aside the labels. And I, and I think you're absolutely spot on. The diversity and inclusion stuff is just full of so much verbiage and clutter. Because mm. uh, really what we're saying is, in any situation, respect me for who I am. Mm. Pay attention to my beliefs. And mm. just allow me to have them. Allow me to have my individuality. Uh, and welcome me into the group no matter who i am mm. and and i think yeah i mean it, it, no, number one i'm really really pleased that you're that you're well and that you recovered from that and i, I think mean, it was a small thing it's a relatively small thing yeah but you said you see, you say that, I, I would say that it sounds to me, and, and this is my own language, and the listeners can put whatever um, okay. language around it that they want to, but I would argue that that's divine intervention. Because it sounds to me as if something was needed to shift yeah, yeah. the dynamic and the energy of that meeting. Well, straight after the meeting, that's exactly what people said. Number one, they said, Philip, you should have seen the middle-aged guys in the room worried for themselves because they thought you were having a heart attack. And then somebody else said to me, and I remember standing in 
one of the squares in Barcelona. Um, and this guy said to me, well, that was pretty good. Things weren't going so well. So you had a little word with God and arranged for an incident that would bring <laughs> yeah. everybody together again. Well done. It went very good after that. Now, he was joking, but he wasn't joking. Now, we'll never know. We'll never know. But what I, what I think, Saida, is all around us, there are little miracles waiting to happen mm. that we need to kind of be in the, the present moment to open ourselves up to the possibility that those little miracles we, we can tap into mm. should we need to. Um, Absolutely. You need yes. to be ready to be able to have the download. That's that's the kind of way that I put it. And yes. and if you're not open to it and you resist it, then at some point that lesson is going to come. You know, yeah. um, and and I, my my biggest realization in life is that um, rather than ignore some of the messages that keep coming back again and again, it's actually really important to. Um, to listen to those whispers, to listen to the the repetition that's coming back, and address it. Because when you don't, it can it can come and it can happen in quite a, in a way that kind of like knocks you for six. Yeah, well, exactly. That's, I'm I'm writing a book at the moment, just about going to be out by the end of this year. The nine keys of synchronicity. Uh, from my I did a PhD in leadership and synchronicity, as, as you know, but your audience won't know. Uh, and I've got a book called The Nine Keys. What are the factors? which seem to facilitate synchronicity happening. Uh, and being in the present moment mm. is crucial, but I love, and I've just written down what you said, ready for the download, meaning one of the other keys I have is act on intuition. So it's not just good enough to have an intuition. You've got to be ready to move on it because if you have an intuition and you don't follow it, then the time passes. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm ready for the download. I really like that, uh, Saida. Oh, thank you, Phil. It means, it, that means a huge amount. And it's interesting because the sign behind me um, says intellectual integrity requires putting your ideas oh, okay. into action. And and for me, it's just such a profound statement because you're right. You know, we have in, intuition, we have ideas. Um, there there are a million different things that I could work on, for example. But it's kind of doing that analysis and saying, what are the things that that really only I can do, and then having that download and then putting that thing into action. Know, I, I probably, I mean, I used to keep black books of ideas and I abandoned them because I had so many. <laughs> but is that piece of what is that thing that's important enough for you to follow through on? And, and I think for me, it's very much about intuition and leaning into that and just saying, well, opportunities are going to come and go. And sometimes you've got to say no, because there's something bigger that is kind of pulling you and just allow that to happen and 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 I suppose the word that's coming to me is just surrender to it because it's not easy you know <laughs> it's kind of, but well, I, think, I think when it comes you see I mean there's so much stuff around how do we get out of depression how do we get out of when things are going wrong one of the best ways is helping somebody else and I don't mean that go and find somebody to help I mean that I've often noticed that when I'm in the middle of stuff and I'm thinking, oh, my God, what the hell's going on? Somebody will come to me and there's just an immediate response, meaning mm. 
I just go and do whatever is necessary to help. Uh, and the amazing thing is that once you've done that and you've come back to saying, now, what was I worried about? And you find actually there's nothing to worry about. Because mm -hmm. I think one of the major factors I think all of us have is not survival of the fittest in terms of how humankind developed. There's now a lot of stuff written that says that humankind developed because of survival of the kindest. Mm, I love that. We have as human beings an instinctual need, drive to help somebody. And we don't think about it. We don't have to plan it. We just do it when it comes because that's how we all survive. Mm. And I think that the more kindness, I, again, you had some great questions you gave me, so I'm now referring to those. And I've noticed that all the way through, what makes you inspired? Kindness. What is it that gets you unstuck? Kindness. What is it that enables you to help other people? Put kindness first. And, and so that, to me, is, is one of the ways to begin to deal with the situation that we're in. All of us, and I've been pretty depressed at times. I was most depressed when I had to have my COVID um, test waiting for the result. Mm. And I, you know, I've been teaching for 30, 40 years ways of being heart-focused to enable yourself to get through particular situations. And here I was, my immediate thought after being tested was, what if I test positive? What if I go in a hospital? What if I die? And that was like, you know, in three seconds. And so I think it's about constantly, and I got over that by literally coming to listen and breathe into the heart. But mm -hmm. then bring head in, because I think it's wrong to think that it's heart only. We have a heart and we have a head. And you have to balance both of those. And sometimes follow the head. You are given a head and a brain to sometimes follow the logical advice. Mm -hmm. Link that with, with, with heart and head together. And I think those are the things that if we respond to kindness, both from ourselves and in other people, that's one of the ways, I think, and what's for me, one of the lessons of COVID. Mm. And I think when, when I'm listening to you describing kindness, one of the things that, that I'm uh, reflecting on and also hearing is when one is kind of kind to somebody else, actually you're also doing a really big kindness for yourself. And I view this as a gift. You know, when, when we give gifts to other people, we think that it's the other person, the other person thinks that they're the one that's in receipt. But what I've started to realize as I'm kind of, you know, inverted commas, growing older and wiser, is that I'm the one that receives the bigger gift in giving it. You know, it's not just about kind of watching um, the joy that they experience as they unwrap it, et cetera, et cetera. But actually the fact that that person cares enough to receive the gift is also a kindness for me. It's true, but don't be motivated by that. No, no, not at all. I've seen so many people, and you're right, I'm not saying you're wrong, Sadie, but I've seen people say, Oh, but let me be kind because I'll benefit. Don't go through that. Yeah, if you do that, oh my gosh, it's destructive. A lot of people do. A lot of people do. Oh, I'll be kind because then I've heard this going to be good for me. Kindness just comes. Mm. It's the 
human condition and just let that flow. Um, and it's, I guess it's just about being human, but, but let it flow. And, uh, and what reminds me, because you asked me as well, what am I doing to keep myself sound during, you know, sometimes depressing times? I've been depressed and lonely. Mm. By that, my wife's been sick and that's been challenging. Um, I watch good old movies. What's your favorite? Well, no, I noticed that the movies that I love and I watch 20, 30, 40 times are those with stories where kindness is at the heart. Mm. So when you say what's my favorite, I've got many. But I, I came across uh, The Blind Side again. I don't know if you know that one. Where I Sandra, don't. Sandra Bullock is a very wealthy Republican in the States. Mm -hmm. uh, she takes in an African-American guy who's on the streets and helps him become one of the best uh, football players in the States. It's a true story. Wow. Now, some people say it's a bit racist. I don't really pay attention to that because... When I watch that movie, and I watch it, I've watched it 20 times, I know there are points in the movie when I'm going to be in tears and my heart is going to be expanding so amazingly. So one of the ways to actually get yourself back in sync in these times, find a movie that you were moved by because it's full of courage, it's full of kindness, it's full of love, it's full of understanding. And as you watch it, let those feelings flood through you. Mm. I found no better way, certainly for me, uh, of actually doing that. And then the other thing that I found is I love walking. Uh, and my wife and I sound like you. You must meet my wife someday. Um, we love pilgrimages and walking too. Mm. But I discovered by chance virtual hikes. <laughs> yes, I have heard of those. Well, if you go on YouTube and you search for virtual hikes, you can find these amazing, silent, two, three, four-hour hikes along some of the most famous places in the world, mountains, uh, trails, the great forests. And it actually takes you at walking pace mm. with the sound of the birds And you feel like you're actually there mm. because it's so, there's no words. You just walk through the forest and that refreshes, refreshes me even like a real walk. Mm. So, so I'm very big into flood your body wherever you can in situations where kindness is dominant, uh, where being at peace with nature and in touch with nature is there. Mm, I love that. I love that. And it's so funny because you're, you're taking me to, I have a Peloton bike and, and I absolutely love it. It's been my saving grace through the pandemic. And uh, it's a stationary bike. Oh, right, a stationary right, right, right. bike that's kind of like got um you can do classes i really like spin classes when i'd go to the gym my subscription for the classes rather than for the weights and all of the other stuff oh, okay. Okay, 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 and then um, and they actually have kind of rides scenic rides they call it so you can okay. sit on the bike and you can basically cycle through i don't know california and um, yeah. the, the rice fields of bali and all of these other kind of like craziness yeah, that's what i'm talking about But it's just such a gift. And and when when the kids were using the bike, they really loved those things. 
And I think that it's just it's just the ability to then kind of create or take yourself into a space where, okay, I mean, it's, of course, it's in though it's videos, it's kind of a sense of artificial nature, but it's still nature. You know? It's not artificial, though. If you believe that actually experiencing it makes it not artificial, then it's artificial. If, you, mm. if, you, if you're there in the, in the mountain track or in the forest, your body doesn't know the difference. That's true. So the benefits mm. are exactly the same as actually being there. Mm. Uh, of all the things I've done, nothing has transported me more than these walks. And, and you're absolutely right. It has to be somewhere that you know and recognize. Because mm. uh, I miss walking so much in, in, in forests and stuff. So I can go anywhere in the world and I choose Bali or I choose Japan or I'll choose California Redwood Forest. I know the Redwood Forest. So oh, lovely place. It's got to be a place that you know and recognize. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of questions left for you um, as we wrap up. And um, the first one is, yeah, I mean, honestly, like we could do a whole series together. <laughs> um, but I'd love to know if, if your 16-year-old, like 16-year-old Philip is looking at you now, what would he say to you? So I actually had different things from a 16-year-old. You asked also for the 21-year-old, right? Mm. Um, uh, they're both very materialistic. My 16-year-old would say, find a regular girlfriend early on. Mm. Now, that's simply because I have learned and grown so much from my relationships and especially with my wife. My wife's behind me here, as you can see. I can see. She's beautiful. Um, And I found so much growth in me as a human being through my ups and downs and love and arguments with my wife. Uh, And I know that as a 16-year-old, I was caught up in all the typical things that teenagers are caught in, you know, have a girlfriend, change the girlfriend, all that stuff. So... My 16-year-old would say to the older person, make sure you find a girlfriend early on and commit and start learning the lessons early on. You'll be a greater human being. Mm. My 21-year-old said, buy a property early on in your life and build your capital. Mm. Why I say that is that lots of people start having a mortgage when they're like 30, 40, whatever, 30, 35. Um, but I've noticed that the purchases of property uh, that I've made in my life have actually supported me much more than my business. Mm. So I would encourage my 21-year-old would say to me, buy a property earlier so that you can be financially secure in order to focus on what God has put you on this earth to do when you don't have to worry about money. Mm. It's really funny you say that because, um, I, I, I mean, you know, we can all look back and think about, you know, why do we make these decisions or not make them? And there was a time when I was 18, I took a year out from um, uh, A-levels in university and um, I had a job as a market researcher okay. and, um, you know, I was pretty good at it. And so I was able to do kind of like three days of work in two days. And uh, my salary was good enough to be able to get a mortgage for a house in Muzzle Hill. All right. okay. And I didn't do it. 
didn't do it. Lots of hill, expensive place. Why didn't you do it? Why didn't you do it? I don't know. I just I think it's because at the time it just wasn't with on my radar. You know, I didn't know other 18 year olds who were doing something like that. Whereas if that was my experience, I probably would have done it. You know, I used to actually work also in Crystal Palace. In Crystal Palace, I had a house that I bought for £65,000. I went to work in Hong Kong, rented it out. And because I had a lot of trouble with the renters and all the rest of it, um, I decided to sell it. That was in 1992. And that oh, okay. £65,000 house, three-bedroom house in Crystal Palace, is now worth three, four million. Oh, my God. I'm not. I'm not saying this because I'm a materialist. I'm definitely mm. not. I, mean, I think money is okay, but it's not the be all and end all. But you need it in order to do the things that you have to do without worrying where the food's coming from or who's paying the rent. I completely um, agree with you because I think some of the things that, or some of the decisions that I've been able to make in my life, I've been able to make because. Um, you know, I, I, you work really, really hard to get to a place of financial stability. And once you've got that, different decisions are open to you because you're not worrying about, you know, how's the rent going to be paid and, you know, where does the food come from and things like that. And uh, we could have a whole other conversation just unpacking well, well, some the of final these thing things. The final thing on it, Saida, is that and maybe this is the way we should close, but all of us are put on this earth for a reason. Mm. And I have to believe that we live many lifetimes. But in this particular lifetime, we're here to grow as a human being in a particular way. Mm. Uh, and I work and coach so many people who, when you talk to them, they're not in the job that brings them happiness and meaning. And when you ask why, they say, well, when I was 25 years old and leaving university, my mum and dad said the best thing to do was to become this or this or this or this or this. And so if they didn't have a mortgage or didn't have something to pay off way into their 40s, 50s, then they could focus on what is it that turns me on in terms of allows me to make a contribution that's mm. uniquely my own. Mm. And the more I think you have just some finances to fall back on, then you can make those courageous decisions to live the life that you know you're meant to live. Mm. And I read a really interesting piece exploring, um, uh, you know, McKinsey's work on diversity and the London yeah, Business yeah. School have done some quite interesting stuff on diversity as well. And they're looking at, you know, what is the business case of it? Um, I shared a post about that on my LinkedIn and I'll put that into the show notes for here today. Um, and what's really fascinating about that is that um, the London Business School are kind of, essentially saying that millennials and young people no longer look for the lucrative position they look for meaning and for me that is just so good to hear you know of course there will be some people who desire um, you know a very financially lucrative career but actually the fact that there has been a shift enough for it to be seen and recognized in the research and there's a search for meaning i think gives us a huge amount of optimism for the future i think so but, but let me share it's always been there mm. those people 
who are looking for the lucrative position, they're doing that for a reason that is their meaning. But the trouble is, very often people have put that meaning, what would give the meaning, on the back burner. Mm. So I think that everybody is motivated by the search for meaning. When we come to that last breath, our focus is, am I going to be missed? Did my life have meaning? Mm. All of us have that. Uh, it's just I think that millennials, thank God, or younger people, are now realizing and expressing that mm. more more often than maybe. But it's still always there in other people too. To wrap up, I'm going to ask you, um, what advice do you have for me? Personally? Mm. Okay. I, <laughs> and this came, I very often do downloads. When I sign my books, I write a unique phrase for every single person by just doing a download. So earlier on, when I was doing this, you were definitely in my mind. The words that came, enjoy chilling and laughing with friends. Mm. And, and the thought that came behind it is that you are involved in so many big ventures and, and wonderful things that require your intellect and require everything. And just somehow the thought for you was make sure you spend time just doing ordinary stuff, laughing and messing around with friends. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It certainly does. And it's really funny because um, my husband and my daughter are uh, kind of going for a day trip on Friday. And so I said to my son, you know, what, what's your plans? And he said, well, why don't we go for a day out? And I just thought that was really nice. So my Friday is now going to be um, just hanging out with him and just what? doing whatever what? he wants to do. I've seen pictures of your family. You've got wonderful kids and your husband too i've seen all of you together so yeah so that that makes perfect sense so maybe i'm just foretelling what you're already supposed to be doing you look a pretty peaceful person Slater. i can tell that you've got a twinkle in your eye and i bet you're a bit of a rebel somewhere somehow 100 percent. no i'm sure but you link that to peace as well but you've definitely got such a liveness in in your face and in your eyes so so i, I really appreciate that Oh, thank you. It's been a real gift um, just even hearing what you're saying in the last couple of minutes. But actually, this whole conversation has been really amazing. And I didn't even get a chance to ask you about taxi driving, which we may have to pick up another time. Well, it's very simple. No, that's very simple. After eight years with Lambeth uh, and all the stresses of looking after kids and all of that difficult stuff, I said, I want a job where I don't have to think. And so I worked for Kipling Taxis in London. I did 6 to 6 a.m. p.m. or 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And I loved it because all I had to do was to transport people from A to B. And it was ready for my next job, but I loved that part of my job. Mm. And maybe now you're transporting people from A to B in a different way. Maybe, maybe. I could tell you lots of stories about my taxi days, though, but that's another time. <laughs> well, hopefully you will you will come back and, and be a guest on another one of our um, shows. I'm very happy to, to, to continue to talk to you because you're great to talk to, Saida. Oh, thank you, Peter, as are you. Oh, Philip. Thank you, Philip. 
Um, That's my next life, Peter. (laughs) I'm telling you, I have dyslexia with names. I cannot find um, the actual name for that. But very seriously, I have a colleague that um, I, I have a colleague called Daniel and I made such a mistake. I called him David once and it was so embarrassing because we've been working together for so many years. And I just thought, you know, in, in some ways I have to kind of share this piece about being dyslexic with names and just remember, I have to really pay attention because I know my name is unusual. And so sometimes when when people don't have that care, it can come across as being really disrespectful and so, it's certainly not intended. But Let me give you another take on that. Please. It's nothing, it's nothing to do with you. Maybe you've got insight that in a previous life or the next life I was called Peter. Oh, my gosh. I know that you will remember my name because you know my name. Mm. When you slip like that, it's not a slip. You're actually taking wisdom elsewhere. So don't think about it as something to do with you. Maybe you have insight to something that the other person doesn't have. Wow. That is so deep and and I think is a perfect place for us to end today. Thank you it's so much. It's been an absolutely nice, Aida. And, and really, anytime you want to, just I'd love to have more conversations with you. Thank you. Let Enjoy me just... your rest of your day. Oh, I was going to ask you very quickly, if people want to find out more about you and the work that you do, where uh, can they... philipmary.com. Brilliant. And we'll include links to that in the show note. And I encourage everyone to find out more about Philip. And then also when your book does come out, we'll include a link for that in here as well. And And also if anybody has synchronicity stories, especially in relation to business, because people don't talk about them often, please just send them to me. Phil uh, at philipmary.com is my email. Website is www.philipmary.com. One Ellen Philip. Uh, share your stories and let's, you know, get this moving to get people to be more whole in the workplace. Mm, well said, well said. Thank you so much. And we'll speak again very soon. Take care. Bye, guys. If you enjoyed this episode of With Sayada, I'd appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people find out about the podcast and the work of the Centre for Belonging and Understanding.